All right. Welcome, guys. So today we've got uh, Dr. Eric Helms on the podcast, and he's going to be talking about how to utilize RPE in strength sports. So first off, Eric, I want to say thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's uh, really excited to have you here. I've listened to a lot of your stuff and read a lot of your your papers and just kind of work in the past. So it's really cool to be chatting. Can you just give yourself a quick introduction for the people who maybe aren't familiar with you? Yeah, for sure. Well, first off, thanks for the kind words. Thanks for having me on. Honored to discuss all this this fun stuff that I spend way too much time discussing, but I just seem to not be able to get enough of it. Um, yeah. So about me, uh, yeah, I'm I'm first and foremost a lifter. I think that's that's how it started for me back in '04, um, and quickly found myself, as I often do, with something I like, relatively obsessed, uh, and it becoming the focus for me for a career intellectually. Um, and pretty much every aspect of my life. So, um, became a personal trainer a few years after I started lifting as you know, most people probably would recommend not to do. I did it, um, you know, made a lot of errors, but got better from, from learning, um, uh, at the expense of my clients. Sorry, everyone. Um, and got into competitive natural bodybuilding, <clears throat> powerlifting and other strength sports, got into coaching, uh, fast forward to today. Um, I am a co-owner with, uh, my four other partners of 3d muscle journey, where we provide support and, uh, evidence-based content to the drug-free lifting community. Uh, and I'm also a contributor to mass along with Greg Knuckles, Eric Trexler, and Mike Zerdos. I've got some books and I am also a uh, research fellow at the Auckland university of technology, um, looking at strength and physique sports science, uh, mentoring masters and PhD students. Uh, and I did my PhD and my second master's here at AUT in New Zealand. So researcher, coach, content creator, guy who likes picking things up. That's kind of me. Yeah. And you, you did your PhD in uh, utilizing RPE as well, which is one of the reasons why I was so interested in having you on the episode. So I think maybe we should just kind of start out by giving like a little bit of a base framework. So like what is RPE? Where did it originate and kind of how did it evolve into being utilized in, in strength sports in general? Great question. Yeah. So um, rating a rating perceived exertion uh, with a quantitative scale uh, first was happening in the right about 50 years ago. I think the first publication uh, was by Borg, as we say as Americans, it's probably pronounced Berg um, in 1970. Um, and the first scale uh, was a six to 20 scale. And it was used primarily in like incremental aerobic tests. Um, and the reason why it was six to 20 is it loosely represented a uh, heart rate from like 60 to 200 from, you know, resting to max. Um, and over the years, it was uh, validated, uh, shown to be reliable and used in other modalities. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, the CR10, the category ratio uh, Borg scale, um, was, it was created because it's a little more intuitive and not everything is about heart rate. Uh, and that's where the probably the most common usage of RPE is at least in exercise science, not necessarily in powerlifting, of giving a general RPE score of zero to 10. Um, and this has changed and been utilized in multiple ways over time. In the early 2000s, uh, something called session RPE was created, which takes the same CR10 scale, but after you're done with your entire training session, uh, 15 to 30 minutes afterwards, you ask, how is your workout? And that's supposed to represent the overall difficulty of like the global uh, perceived exertion of, of a training session. Um, a few years later, our very own uh, powerlifting golden boy, uh, uh, Mike Tushier, 
created um, reactive training systems and wrote his book about that. And he conceptualized using RPE uh, as a way of specifically uh, rating sets uh, in heavyweight training. And he was ahead of his time in that one of the ways he would rate that difficulty was instead of giving the subjective descriptors like uh, hard, very hard, things like that, uh, as you got higher on the RPE scale, closer to 10, he started using uh, repetitions to failure. So a seven RPE was, you think you could do three more reps, an eight RPE, you could do two more reps, a nine RPE, one, and a 10 was the most you could lift uh, for one rep. Um, and the reason why I say he was ahead of his time is that in 2012 uh, was the first publication I'm aware of uh, where someone looked at how good are lifters at gauging how far they are from failure. And this is a study by Hackett uh, where they compared the original CR10 scale uh, versus just saying how many more reps you think you can do. So just like a raw RIR, repetitions in reserve, or raw repetitions to failure in bodybuilders performing multiple sets of bench and squat. And they found that, and this has actually been shown a few times in the research, that even when going to failure, when people use the CR10 Borg scale, um, they will sometimes rate a set to failure as an eight or a nine RPE. Now this seems really counterintuitive if the first time you heard of RPE was from like the Mike T style scale, because how could it be any harder? You did as many reps as you could with the load that's on the bar. And the thing is, is because the scale is subjective, because what might be perceived as very hard or hard by someone who has a different uh, resistance training background, no resistance training background, maybe they're, they're a runner or something like that, uh, is very different than someone who got introduced to RPE through kind of the Mike T uh, line of, uh, of, of inquiry and, and style of rating RPE. So someone might go, yeah, that was my 5RM, but it's not as hard as running a marathon. So when I compare the two in my head, I'll give it an eight. And this was shown in that study as well. Most of the time, these bodybuilders, even when they hit failure, uh, they're rating their RPE around nine. However, they're within one rep of accurately rating uh, the repetitions to failure on average. And the, you could argue from that study that the accuracy was better uh, with them just simply saying how many more reps they thought they could do. In the middle of a set, they were asked, you know, at the top of the squat or at lockout on bench, how many more can you do? Three. And then they would go and they would compare the actual versus the predicted. That's been replicated in multiple different ways, validated with velocity. I did some of this work. Dr. Zerdos has done some of this work. Hackett's done more. Uh, Steele and, and, and Fisher have done more. And uh, Colby Sousa has done more under um, Dr. Zerdos. And over time, we've seen that uh, the more trained you are, the more accurate you are at rating. Uh, your, your distance from failure. And there are about three studies now that show that rating a kind of traditional Borg RPE uh, can result in these sub-maximal ratings despite going to failure. So that's why I say he's ahead of his time. Um, and that initial book that uh, Mike T wrote and what he started with RTS uh, back in 2007, 2008 is what spurred myself and Dr. Zerdos and others to pursue this line of inquiry, which is still going on today. So that's kind of the the timeline of that research. And so what was it about uh, RPE scale in, in particular that made you want to pursue that specifically for, for your PhD? Yeah. So, you know, I was interested in looking at programming and periodization for my, my PhD. And a lot of the research in periodization I found was kind of uh, mired in camps and in relatively rigid rules. And my experience as a coach 
and in working with higher level lifters, it taught me that there's a certain amount of individual individualism and agility you need to help people keep making progress, especially in a sport uh, like powerlifting in the West, where people all have full-time jobs, they're coaches, they they, they want to compete at a world-class level, um, but they also have to balance that with having kids, uh, job, family, et cetera. Um, so I found a lot of the assumptions that seemed embedded in standard kind of periodization were, were trying to predict performance months in advance. Um, and they were primarily based around uh, metrics that weren't quite, um, that could be individualized. Like you can certainly uh, take an athlete and test how many reps they can get at 80% of one RM. Um, but most of the time, what people do is they take these semi-stock standard programs, make small adjustments to them and go, okay, you're going to be doing on your quote unquote hypertrophy day three by eight at 70%, you know, week one. And from what I know of the literature, there are some people who can do uh, 20 plus reps with 70% of one RM. And there's some people who struggle to get 10. So those are very divergent uh, programming. Um, strategies for two different people if they have different characteristics, uh, but they're seen as being quote unquote objective because it's a strict percentage of one RM. And I think it's actually less accurate. So that was some of the, uh, the rationale for me. I didn't want to, you know, pigeonhole myself in comparing say one specific type of periodization versus another. Um, even then, you know, periodization is very conceptual. Like you can say reverse linear or linear or block or undulating, weekly undulating, daily undulating. But then when you actually sit down and create a program um, from a statistical perspective and a scientific perspective, if I was to, to do a comparison and say, hey, this, this program was significantly better than this program, I could really only say it about the program because you can create another iteration of any one of those periodization philosophies written better or poorly or, or better or worse designed, and you could see it flip the other way. So I thought it would be more useful for me to investigate uh, tools of individualization rather than specific schools of periodization uh, in terms of what I could give back to the community. Can you kind of explain the difference of, sorry, the difference between like intensity of effort and intensity of load before kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty stuff of RP? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's an important distinction. So for example, if you were to put 85% of your one arm on the bar, most people would say that's a, that's a high load, that's a heavy load, or, or, you know, maybe one step down from what, if you're thinking of it in terms of bands of, of percentages of like 90% over is like the heaviest you, you would go. That's the heaviest using a training block, 85%. It's just one step down. Um, however, if you were to do a single rep with 85% of one RM, depending on your individual characteristics, that would probably be like a five or a six or a four RPE, meaning you could do four, five, or six more reps after that first rep. So there's no doubt that if you put 85% of your 1RM and then you're in a regular quote unquote state, you're not especially fatigued. Uh, and it wasn't a long ass time ago when you tested that 1RM, you'll be able to smoke that sig single, no problem. It'll feel heavy on your back. Um, and it is heavy, no doubt. It's 85% of your 1RM, but the intensity of effort, which you could describe with being RPE is low on the, uh, the RIR repetitions in reserve based RPE scale, that'd be like a five RPE. And if you read some people's comments online or their discussions, there's no point in ever training with a five RPE. That's, that's, that's warmups, you know, um, which may or may not be the case. And I think it's, it's a funny thing that sometimes the conversation changes just by starting to use 
RPE. Like if you look at all of the Shiko programs um, and, and that style of, uh, of training, most of the time you're doing doubles, triples, and fours between 75 and 85% of 1RM. And people are, are totally fine with that. Uh, but when you tell them that I want you to do a double or a triple at a five RPE, they go, oh, you can't do that. You won't, you, you, you won't get better. You can't, you can't get stronger with a five RPE, you know? So I think that's, that's a, a that's not the point of your, your question, but it's a useful foil to kind of show the distinction um, that there are somewhat independent effects of the two. Um, I would probably guess that doing a lower RPE set at a higher load uh, would be more uh, more likely to improve strength than say doing a lower RPE set with a lower load, even though you'd get a lot more reps in. You know, if you did, let's say you could do 15 reps at 70% of 1RM and you did 10 uh, versus doing a double at 85%, I would expect that the double at 85% to more acutely increase your strength, even though they're both a five RPE. So they both have an effect. Uh, they're, they're measuring two different things. Uh, one is how much effort could you have put into a set at a given load? And the other is just describing the load. So, yeah. That's so funny, actually, that you point that out as far as the whole, the whole Shiko thing goes, because <laughs> that, that definitely is like exactly how people, uh, people tend to frame it. But I don't know. I, I honestly think a lot of the conversation, why there's a lot of disagreement is because I don't know that people are accurately rating RPEs sometimes, you know, hmm. like I've heard people say, Oh, that's a seven. So it's not that bad. And it's like, in my opinion, if it's a really a seven, like three reps shy of failure is super hard, like super freaking hard. Eight, nine and 10. Those are all really, really hard. And I don't know. Sometimes I just think that it kind of gets dismissed. It's like, ah, four reps away from failure. That's not that bad. I'm like, Oh, it's, if you're actually four reps from failure, that's freaking, that's still really hard. Like seven RPE is still super hard. And I don't know. That's a conservative I've opener, had, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah. what are some of the pros and, and as well as the common criticisms of RPE over like alternate approaches to prescribing, you know, training intensity? Yeah. I think, um, I think you're, I would say it's not even a tangent based upon the question that you just said that people are not accurate. That's the biggest uh, con. That's the biggest critique. Um, however, I, I tend to find that critique falls relatively flat for me because they don't, there's not often a, a logical counterpoint to it for what you're supposed to do instead. You know, from my perspective, uh, like, like I said earlier, my rationale for utilizing RPE and studying it was because it's the current methods we use are not accurate. You know, we have studies showing that, um, if you take people with an endurance training background versus a strength training background, there might be a 60% difference in how many reps they get on leg press at 80% of one RM. Uh, we have studies where if you, if I told you the highest rep and the lowest rep that someone could get at 70% of one RM, it'd blow your mind. It's six and 29. Now, of course, those are multiple standard deviations from the mean. Most people are going to be between 10 to 20. But the idea of RPE being flawed because people are two to three reps off, when I know that there's a chance if I give you a raw percentage, you could be 10 reps off. To me, it seems like an improvement, not a bug. Um, I also think that people forget that RPE exists whether you track it or not. 
is kind of like, you know, the, your foods have macros, even if you're not doing, if it fits your macros, like you are a certain number of reps from failure every time you train. Um, and, you know, if you followed a percentage one RM based program, and it was, you know, Shiko esque yeah, you're going to be training at, you know, a four to a seven RPE 90% of the time, unless you're fatigued or peaking. Um, and that wasn't a problem then. It's, it's probably not a problem now. Um, so I think one, another one of the critiques, which I think, which I do think is valid is exactly what you pointed out. And that a less experienced lifter who hasn't been using RPE much is probably going to underrate their RPE. They're going to be, uh, short uh, of what they think they are. They think they're at a seven, they might actually be at a four. And this has been shown multiple times in the research that as training experience increases, um, you start to get more accurate. This was shown really nicely uh, multiple different ways. So Fisher and Steele uh, did, a, did a paper where they broke people up into being novices, having three months of experience, six months of experience, one year, all the way up to five plus years. And then they would have them, they'd allow them to use their, their, their training log and they would go through all these different machines. Uh, so not just squat, bench, deadlift, uh, but various exercises in the gym. And the investigator would ask them, how many reps do you think you can do uh, with this load? Uh, and they would guess uh, based, on, based on their experience and how they felt that day. And they would do it. And you could see this very linear trend that when you got to being five plus years more experienced, you know, when you went to failure, you were within zero to two reps most of the time on your accuracy, while it was more like, you know, five reps short when you were a novice. Um, we've seen, you know, the same thing measured in different ways, um, you know, looking at, you know, the, the correlation between velocity and RPE and novices versus experienced, um, you know, higher RPEs correlate more to slower velocities, the more experienced you are, meaning that you are actually getting closer and closer to failure because velocity slows as you're getting closer to failure. Um, so there's numerous ways of looking at this, but when you start looking at studies on power lifters or on bodybuilders or on people who have five plus years of big training experience, you see it's pretty damn accurate. So that is a valid critique. Uh, but the counterpoint is, is that when you've only had a couple of years of training underneath your belt, do you need to be training to a three, four, a two, a zero RIR most of the time to make progress? And the data we would have would suggest no. Uh, most of the research we have on training to failure is in, you know, the same populations we have in the research, which is mostly like reasonably trained college students. Some of it's on athletes, some of it's on well-trained people. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that the more trained you get, the, the less necessary failure probably becomes uh, because you can actually get pretty close to failure and do a lot of, uh, and really induce some fatigue. Like you said, for you, uh, an experienced lifter, a seven RPE is no joke. It's because you're actually at a seven RPE. So, you know, the, the requirement for how much stress you have to put forward, you could argue probably goes up with training age. Um, so um, I think since a novice or an intermediate can make some pretty good progress being well short of failure and doesn't need as much stress per set, I mean, of course, it depends on volume and frequency, um, that it's not a huge problem. And it's also not something that's static. I think using RPE should be seen as a skill to develop. So those are kind of the cons with my counterpoints. Uh, some cons that I don't have counterpoints to, where I think it's it's probably just not that useful, um, would be in people who find themselves agonizing over the number. Um, that they're looking at their video, they're asking their friend, they're going, it's, it's a seven, this is an eight. And they find they trend towards paralysis by analysis, or that it's just an extra variable for them to track. They might do better without using RPE on certain lifts. Um, and it also depends on how you use it. I, I do prefer 
using RPE in ways that is complementary to other approaches. So for example, uh, if I am going to work with someone with not a ton of experience, I'll norm normally give them a percentage 1RM and then an RPE range afterwards. So for example, if, let's go back to that three by eight at 70%, I might say in parentheses, oh, and by the way, this should be between a six to eight RPE. So if that first set at 70% is a five RPE, we kick the load up a little bit on the next one so that all the sets fall between that six to eight RPE range. And they can try to hit the bottom and then cumulative fatigue will drive it up set to set. Um, that's, that's useful for anyone who's new to it. Um, another way to do it is to kind of, for more experienced lifters, is to have an idea of the number you're trying to hit based on previous uh, you know, sessions. So for example, if you're in a, a peaking block for a meet, and it calls for you know a single at an eight RPE followed by back off work. You probably look through your training log and see, okay, what was the heaviest single at an eight I've hit up to this point in this block? Let me go up two and a half from there and see how it feels. You know, um, you know, it might be a little fatigued. It might be eight and a half, or you might have gotten stronger than you expected from that point. And hell, you hit a seven or seven and a half. Great news, right? Um, in either case, you could like estimate a one RM for that number based on, on assuming your RPE calculation is correct and do your back off work from that. And you're able to kind of have this ongoing gauge of, uh, of what your estimated one RM is. So the only true critique that I really have is that if it really gets in your head, it's probably not uh, something to use all the time or on certain lifts or in certain circumstances where, you know, if you're close to a meet and you just need some objective numbers to hit that, you know, that that's a great, then if we don't want to talk about individualization, if you're working with a coach who knows you really well and knows the rate of progress they can expect from you, they can be like, Hey, I want you to hit 205 on Saturday. And they think about how much fatigue you've incurred, where you're at in your programming. And that's maybe a number they know you'll hit, but then maybe a reach or not. And then be on, maybe on the platform, you're hitting 215, 220 or something like that. That's just a random example. But, um, I, I found myself as a coach in that situation where I will within the same week for certain lifters, uh, program RPE and program exact loads um, because I I want to protect them from potentially failing close to a meet um, and also not have that sense of urgency that we all experience when we want to be stronger in our next meet. And sometimes we see the opposite. Instead of underrating RPE, we're like, let me go for something that's probably going to be eight and a half and I'll call it an eight just because I want to have confidence that I could open uh, at, at that and then have a second attempt that, that, that gets me close to that PR on my third kind of thing. So psychology definitely comes into play because of its subjective nature um, and that it may, that may need to be sidestepped. Um, so that's a lot of cons and the potential counterpoints. Some of the pros are that obviously it, it inherently individualizes programs, right? In terms of the load aspect. Um, it also gives you a constant bead on what your current estimated strength is throughout a block without necessarily needing to test. So one thing I like to do is during even volume blocks, I'll do some singles. We talked about a single at 85% of one RM, like a single at a five or six RPE. I'm not super confident that's an accurate reflection of an estimated one RM, but the way you use that is you go, okay, I did a single at 85% uh, or what I think is that, we'll just say a single at a five RPE. If I did get another five reps, that is my six rep max, I'm gonna calculate my estimated one RM from that six rep max and use that to gauge my progress throughout this volume block. And then when I get closer to competition, those singles become sixes and then sevens and then more frequent and then eights and then nine, then I'm practicing my openers, then I deload and I, and I do a meet. And this is a way to give you a little more confidence on, on the efficacy of your program, or at least 
is your strength doing what's expected? When you're pushing a lot of stress to the system, is it maintaining or going down? That's fine. Uh, when you have a few days off and you test it again, is it coming back up? Does that mean you had enough stress and then enough recovery to actually see that increase in performance? Uh, is your taper working, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, RPE, unlike say a percentage one RM, if you're not thinking about it, you know, if you just have three by three at 90% of your pretest, uh, that could go really well, or it could be really, really challenging. And you might have an idea of how strong you are, but if, if it's not, you're not actively collecting data on what is my estimated strength, which is something I really like from estimating how many reps you could have done. Yeah, that's great. You definitely said a lot there and there's quite a bit to <laughs> kind of unpack <laughs> even beyond that. Um, I think the one thing that I, I liked, you mentioned in the beginning, the predictive power of being able to determine your, your level of athlete or sorry, your athlete's level of preparedness at any given time point, let's say a month down the road, two months, three months, and how that might fit in with, with RPE. And so it's, it kind of seems like RPE, the level of imprecision is, is based on the athlete's uh, discernment. Whereas with percentage-based training, the imprecision is based on the coach's ability to predict. And so it kind of seems like either way, there is some margin of error and I mean, if you do have both, it just ends up being another tool. And again, I don't want to kind of mischaracterize whatever you're saying, but it, it kind of sounds like you're saying that utilizing RP or its, its effectiveness anyways would kind of be predicated on the individual and where they kind of fall on that spectrum based on like their psychology, how familiar they are with it, um, their training experience and all the other kind of variables and things like that. So especially... I, I let, what did you say again? The RPE exists regardless of whether or not you use it. hundred percent. Like if you, if you don't have to track how far you are from failure, but you are some distance from failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, I feel like that's a really important point as well, because yeah, it exists, it exists whether you acknowledge it or not. And so, I mean, if you do have another kind of data point, then, you know, so long as, like you said, you're not kind of obsessive over those things, which I definitely am, <laughs> um, then it, it, can only really stand to, to inform your, your training decisions a little bit better. So awesome. Um, so that was actually one thing that I did want to get into because I have read some of John Kiley's stuff and I have heard him on a couple of different podcasts as well. And he has some really interesting perspectives on um, kind of program, not so much programming, sorry, like periodization and how accurate our ability is to predict an athlete's level of preparedness in the future. So can you just kind of give a little bit of a rant on that and kind of what your thoughts are about that? Yeah, I think John Kiley has, in, in my opinion, pointed out some of the, some of those issues I talked about, like when I was reading periodization literature and figuring out if I wanted to go that way. I think, I think John Kiley's, uh, reviews that he's written point to a misuse of periodization that is more common than I wish it was. And I think it's becoming less common partially because some of his, some of his work and the focus on autoregulation. Uh, and that's kind of what Mike T would describe as a, as a top-down approach. Um, now, sometimes some of the people who have been characterized as enforcing this top-down approach are not necessarily doing that in practice. It's just that when you have to write something for a textbook or in peer-reviewed literature, uh, kind of that academic definitive uh, null hypothesis testing A versus B lends itself towards 
these less nuanced statements. You know, anytime uh, you're comparing a daily undulating program versus a linear program, um, and in the end, in the conclusion, you have to say, this one is better than this one, or there was no significant difference. The intuitive conclusion is it doesn't matter which one you do, or one is better than the other in all cases. When reality, something that blends the two of them might be even better. Or, you know, the one that was better than the other, as my colleague, Dr. Zerto says, might be the second worst program on the planet. And you just looked at the two, the two worst and you found which one was slightly less shitty, you know? So it's, it, it lends itself towards these broader black and white statements that, that really miss the nuance of what it's like to work with individuals. So I think John Kiley has pointed out a number of things that I think are really important for us to keep in mind. Uh, as we increase the complexity of our theoretical models for periodization, we can't lose the fact that some things that are not underneath our control, uh, some things that we can't directly or at least reliably manipulate have very large impacts on the outcomes. So for example, there's research showing uh, that during uh, periods of, of exams, um, college athletes get hurt more frequently. Uh, there's data showing uh, that college students who lift weights, who report more personal life stress, make poor resistance training gains. Uh, there's data showing that if you give athletes uh, inspiring videos or depressing videos before training, it significantly affects their performance. Um, there's data showing that people who are under emotional stress heal slower. Um, there is a ton of data like that. Uh, so, and, and those are just kind of like the emotional psychological aspect, not to mention the fact that the amount of sleep, nutrition, uh, hormonal cycles, especially in women, um, and, and other factors that are outside of what you might put on a spreadsheet can all impact performance. So when you think about all of that and you see a highly pre-planned pre program for the next, you know, three months, you know, multiple mesocycles strung, strung together, and they're defined down to the sets and reps on some day three months from now, it seems to be an inherent mismatch to me. So I think probably a better way of conceptualizing periodization, and this isn't directly related to what John Kiley would suggest, is kind of thinking of it from you know, logical first principles. And this is kind of what, what you were saying earlier, you know, the more I read about this stuff, the less I think uh, it all really makes a lot of sense. And when you think about what we actually know about periodization, things that we have pretty solid data on, it all really does fit together. Um, we know that um, in general, we have the best evidence we can have um, that, that a bigger muscle tends to be a stronger muscle. We know that periodization in general is, is better than non-periodized programs. And in the research that's simply defined as uh, there is some change week to week or every couple weeks, and it is typically moving towards a higher intensity at the time of testing. And that is compared to just training with the same load uh, or rather the same uh, rep, like 6RM the whole time, and then just letting the 6RM go up as you get stronger uh, without any, any variation. Uh, we know that being more stagnant or monotonous in your training, which can be mathematically defined as basically not changing load or volume, um, is, is more correlated with injuries uh, in, in athletes and upper and illness as well, uh, and poor performance, which we haven't observed in strength sport, but I have no reason to believe that wouldn't be the case. So we do know that some element of variation is important, some element of what some, some describe as linearity, essentially seeing volume come down as intensity goes up, 
and that finding a way to make people have bigger muscles might help them be stronger uh, by the time they, they need to actually uh, be strong. So if you let periodization for at least resistance training, because it's a whole other can of worms if you want to talk about everything like a team sport athlete needs to do. But if we, we think about, okay, well, what definitely emerges from that? Uh, we're probably going to see some focus on uh, hypertrophy training further away from a competition, um, or at least higher volumes and less specific work. We're probably going to see changes in the rep targets, the volumes and the frequencies throughout a block. Uh, we're probably going to see some tools to manage fatigue. You know, another element of periodization we've got data on is tapering. And that seems to, at least at the group level, uh, reliably increase strength. So, you know, if you were to make a quote unquote bare bones, only what we have high quality uh, evidence for evidence-based couple of mesocycles, you might have a higher volume block with changes in the reps, uh, at least weekly or, or sometimes day to day, call that undulating. Uh, and you can have the load slowly getting heavier as the volume starts to go down. And then another block uh, where specificity increases, uh, you're doing less hypertrophy work, more um, movements that, that mimic what you're gonna be testing, uh, higher loads, lower reps, higher RPEs perhaps, uh, by, by necessity as load comes up, a taper and then a test. And that's you know about as much as we can say. When you start to see people get more granular than that, we know they're going out on some type of uh, theoretical limb. They could be right and their general statements might be right. However, they could also be totally subsumed, those effects, by some of those things that, that, I, that John Kiley points out. And I think generally the way we look at that is that would be what we described, you know, a bottom up perspective of saying, I can't necessarily predict your performance on any given day, but I'm going to have these general logical sequences and plans for where I'm at with some embedded elements of periodization. And that's going to help us follow what we think is best, but it gives us that ability to adjust when we see that all of the collective things that make you a human in society might result in your performance not being what we necessarily expected. I wanted to touch on just a little bit, like what the differences between RIR and RPE are, since they just kind mm -hmm. of seem like inverse scales of each other. Um, but there does seem to be a difference beyond just counting repetitions in reserve. Um, can you just kind of touch on that briefly? Yeah, I... I used to be a little more rigid with this, and I think it was just because I came from the Mike T school, and when I saw people want to use raw IR, I was like, you can't do that. And then when they ask me why, it's like, well, because it's not the way it's done, which is never a good answer. Um, so I'm, I'm much less uh, against the idea of just using raw RIR, and most of my uh, protestations were, were pretty weak previously. So then um, I'll give you them just so to see people can consider how to prevent these potential pitfalls. So if you look at the scale that we, that, uh, that Dr. Zerdos published and that I was you know a part of and used for my, uh, my my PhD, which is very similar but not exactly the same as Mike T's original scale, um, the ratings for RPEs one to four are subjective. They're a lot similar. They're a lot more similar to like the Borg CR10 scale. Uh, it's like very light effort or light effort, um, and that is specifically because the data suggests that you are less accurate at gauging your RPE or rather your RIR, the further you are from failure. So saying I have seven reps in the tank is kind of the same as saying I have six reps or 10 reps left in the tank. You don't really know even relatively experienced athletes. So maybe don't make up a number that's super inaccurate. You just say that was a light effort. Uh, or if you're even further, you say that's a very light effort. 
And that's one thing that I like about the scale that RIR doesn't have. Um, when you rate high RIR, uh, you are giving a specific number, but you shouldn't have confidence in it. While if you're say two RIR, you can have a lot more confidence in that being you know, a smaller bandwidth of error compared to when you say seven or eight RIR. Another thing I like about the, uh, the RPE scale is that there are 0.5 values. So, you know, we were talking about like openers, for example, with a seven RPE. Uh, there's a lot of times where a second attempt or a third attempt, you could not do a second rep, but you can add load. And I think that's a very common thing. You see a, a kind of grindy second attempt and, and you know, depending on, on how the absolute strength of the athlete, you might only go up two and a half or five kgs on the third attempt. I really doubt the most of the time when you barely make your third attempt with a two and a half kilo jump that your second attempt, you could have done a double not, not going to happen. Right. So what do we describe that as? It's not a 10. You could have done another two and a half or five kilos. And that's what we describe as a nine and a half on the RPE scale, uh, saying I couldn't have done another rep, but I could have done a little more load for the same number of reps. Um, so, uh, you can get around that with raw RIR just by giving a 0.5 value. I think I could have done 1.5, you know, uh, more reps. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's useful. Essentially the 0.5 values on the scale, are describing uncertainty too. So for example, a seven and a half is going, I definitely could have done two more. And I think I would have had a shot at that third rep, but I'm not sure. I probably wouldn't have attempted it without a spotter. That's kind of what the, the language means. Um, so that is a little, it's a little more difficult to communicate that with raw RIR. It's a little easier with the RPE scale. Um, the downside of the RPE scale, though, is that you do have to think about inverting it. You have to look, okay, an eight RPE, what's that again? Oh, it's two more reps. Now you quickly get used to that after using it, you know, a few times. Um, but it's a little more intuitive, especially with, you know, all your blood in your legs and not in your brain, just to be like, I could have done two more, you know, than an eight RPE. So I personally have no issue with someone using either, uh, so long as they're aware uh, that the scale itself allows for uh, some uncertainty with the 0.5 values and that as you get further away from failure, it no longer describes RPE as uh, RIR because you're, you're less certain. So I think um, there's pros and cons. The, the only con I would say is that extra level of, uh, of translation, uh, of having to invert it. Uh, but, but the pros, you know, the two things I mentioned, I, I think are, are worth it if you're familiar with the scale. You mentioned uh, a couple things in, in the beginning, like talking about RPE caps, session RPEs. What are some of the other utilizations of RPE outside of just rating a single set that you can use from, from like a, a program design standpoint? Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a ton of things you can do with it. Um, so some of the more common ones that I find are intuitive and easy to use are having open-ended sets. Uh, and this is another way to blend percentage one RM uh, and RPE. So for example, if you want to um, have a volume day and you would previously program three by eight at 70%, you know, and you listen to this podcast and you go, well, what if I can do 20? Um, and how much stronger have I gotten since I tested my one RMs three weeks ago at the start of this mesocycle? Well, you can still do three by 70% of your previous one RM. Um, but you don't have to stop at your eighth rep. If the goal on that day is to accumulate volume and stimulate hypertrophy, well, the good news is hypertrophy can occur, you know, on a pretty equal per set basis. If the RPE is similar, you know, it's sufficiently hard, whether you're doing six or 20 reps, you know, on a per set basis, the data we would suggest is that if you did six reps and they're reasonably hard, 
or you did 20 reps and they're reasonably hard, both of those sets is going to stimulate a similar amount of muscle mass gains. So you could have an RPE stop. You could do three by eight at 70%. I'm sorry, you could do three sets at 70%, two and eight RPE. Let's say that's what you wanted to stop it. I think that'd be pretty br brutal. I probably wouldn't have it be like an eight RPE as for all three sets. Um, but, you know, let's say, and that's another way to see that you're stronger. You know, it's not directly going to be a good calculation of your estimated 1RM. But if you did, you know, eight, seven, six at the start of your block with 70% of 1RM, let's say you're just really bad at reps. And then, uh, you know, you repeat that same style of session every Monday, three Mondays from now, let's say you go 13, 12, 11, stopping at eight RPE. Sweet. What was previously your 10 RM is now your 15 RM on, on that first set. So you can have a, an open-ended number of reps stopping at a certain difficulty. Um, that, that's one way to do it. So you can set an objective load that is always the same uh, percent of your, of your estimated 1RM. Um, another way I like to use it is uh, when you do those singles, your back-off work can, instead of being an RPE target, it can be a percentage of your estimated 1RM. I do that a lot myself. So in a, in a, in a peaking block where I'm closer to competition, I'll do singles anywhere between a five to a 10 RPE, depending on how close I am to competition. And then I'll do say three by five or three by four, or three by three at like 80, 82 or 85% of my, of my estimated one RM for that day. So my back off work will fluctuate by, you know, five kilos on any given day, depending on how strong I am and what my estimated one RM is. But then I don't have to worry about RPE on my back offsets. I know that I can do, you know, as many as, you know, six or seven reps at 85% of one RM. So a three by three, even if I'm fatigued, it's well, for one, if I'm fatigued, my one RM will be estimated as lower. So it'll automatically scale. Uh, and I can always get a triple at it. Um, so that, that, that's a, another useful tool I find is that the RPE is only on the top set. And then it's a percentage of the estimated one RM afterwards without an RPE. Um, another great way to use it is um, for a session RPE, which I talked about earlier, there's actually a lot of data on session RPE, which is where you rate the whole, whole session, not using uh, any kind of concept of RIR, but just the global difficulty of the session. And there's data showing that if you don't rest as long, you have a higher density of training, it'll drive RPE up. There's data showing that if you use higher loads, it'll drive RPE up. There's data showing that if you do more volume, it'll drive RPE up. There's data showing that if uh, you go closer to failure, it'll drive the session RPE up. So it is a really good sensitive gauge of just how hard was that and all the things that can make it hard. So sometimes when I program, uh, what I'll do is I will have a session RPE in mind for each one of the sessions. So if I have, I typically program in kind of like a, you know, hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, easy style so that um, we get some good work in uh, that is um, allowing recovery for whatever's coming next. So if I have a hard squat and bench day, maybe we have like a deadlift practice day and then some hypertrophy work. And then the next session we can do another, you know, hard squat and bench session, uh, take a day off and then come back and do hard deadlifts, something like that. So I'm always thinking about that. And to ensure that what I think is easy or hard is perceived the same way by the athlete, I can get a session RPE. So if I think the session RPE is a five out of 10 and they rate it as a eight out of 10, then that tells me that I have unrealistic expectations of them, or they're carrying a lot more fatigue than I thought. And it allows me on a truly day-to-day -day basis um, to gauge if what I'm anticipating they're going to experience is the same as what they're actually experiencing. So that's, that's a very valid tool. Um, it is a slightly different scale. Uh, if you look at the, the Borg RPE scale, the CR10 one that's used for session RPE 
five is considered hard. 10 is considered maximal and very hard is like seven or eight. So a lot of the times your program, it's going to be between like a four and a seven, uh, but you don't have to use that. I think the concept is probably pretty useful. You, know, you could, you could use whatever scale you want, one to five, zero to 10 without those same attachments. Um, so long as the person knows it and you know it and you're on the same page and speaking the same language uh, as a coach, you'd be able to, to, to use those modifications. So those are the ways that I use them the most. Um, I will use open-ended sets with an RPE stop. Um, I will use a single with an RPE with back offsets at a percentage. I'll use session RPE. Uh, and then what I mentioned previously for people who are getting used to RPE, uh, I will use uh, percentage reps and an RPE range, uh, like that three by eight, 70%. And by the way, that should be between a six to an eight. Uh, that's also the way I run a lot of the studies at AUT um, because that helps the person set that first load. Um, and a lot of the times uh, study participants haven't used RPE. And if I want to get a little more uh, confidence that the, that the effort is sufficient in these studies, I've got my research assistant. And then I've also got the study participant who are trying to gauge if they fell within the RPE bracket after that first set, which is a, you know an objective 70% or whatever of their pre-test one around. So those are useful. Um, also in those cases, you know, if you are someone who wants to use percentage one RM as much as possible, like maybe that's how you would use your, your RPE as kind of like a corrector to when your percentage of one RM isn't there, um, isn't, you know, it isn't, isn't what you expected it to be. Um, and in those cases, your accessory work, which you probably wouldn't test a one RM, that's where you can just use a straight up RPE. So that's kind of how I write programs for people new to it or in studies, they'll have like you know, squat bench or other compound lifts that we have done a one RM on with, you know, three by eight times 70% in parentheses, six to eight RPE. And then, you know, once they're done with their compounds, it'll say bicep curls, you know, three by eight at a blank RPE could be an RPE range or could be a specific target. Uh, so it's, it's useful for accessory movements where there's less cost to going close to failure, um, less cost to just being a little less accurate and trying to have to quote unquote, feel it out uh, and movements that you wouldn't do in a, a one or M on. How would that apply, I guess, a little bit more broadly from a fatigue management standpoint, um, determining frequency of, of each lift and then maybe intensity and volume as well, again, from a program design standpoint, but maybe zoomed out. And so instead of just looking at a session, we might be looking at like the entire week or month or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So for example, um, if we stick with that kind of hard, easy, hard, easy kind of setup, um, you need to think about overlap and what's going to cause, um, you know, lingering soreness and suppression of force production session to session. Um, and then what is going to be useful work. So if I wanted to give someone, you know, useful work, but in a state where I knew that they weren't very strong or were still dealing with muscle damage, I could do, you know, singles, doubles, and triples at a, you know, five RPE for a limited number of sets and consider that heavy practice. Um, and if I really was thinking about the overlap, I could do different lifts overlapped with others, you know, so I could have a hard squat and bench day, you know, so let's say we're doing sets of, uh, of six to eight RPE on squat and bench, you're pretty wrecked. The next day we come in and we do five singles at a five RPE on deadlifts. And then we train muscles that shouldn't have been too jacked up from your squat and bench for your accessory work. Uh, so uh, we could be doing, you know, some hamstring work after the deadlifts at a reasonably high RPE from accessory movements. And then you know, knowing that we're going to be pretty, pretty beat up globally, we take a day off and then we come back 
and we can do, you know, practice work on the squat and bench and then heavy deadlifting work and no accessories because we just did all three. Not that I would always do that, but this is just kind of a random example. So essentially uh, the way you're looking at the construction of microcycles is that in general, um, as you're moving from further from a competition to closer, uh, your repetitions would be higher. Your RPEs would be more moderate uh, and the movements you would use would be less specific. So let's say you're training in the, you know, five to eight RPE range in the, you know, five to 10 rep range on your main lifts when you're multiple months away from competition. And then as you're getting closer and closer, you're moving towards the one to five rep range and the seven to 10 RPE range uh, with less accessories. Um, but, you know, that might be averages. Uh, when you look at individual days, you might have some days that are, like I said, singles at a, at a moderate RPE next to days that might be a much higher RPE to facilitate that, that recovery and fatigue management um, while still doing something that's useful. So, yeah, I, I, when I program, I normally think about uh, what is the frequency per lift that is appropriate for this person. And th then, then I work from there. So if I have a, let's say, a, a three, two, one uh, frequency on the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. So they're, uh, oh, sorry, a two, three, one. They're squatting twice a week, benching three times a week, deadlifting once. I think about how do I distribute those? Where's the overlapping stress going to be? Uh, and when there is overlapping stress, that's when I will make it an easier day and make it like heavier practice coinciding with lower volumes, lower reps and moderate RPEs. And then depending on if we're further or closer to competition, those other days will look more like volume work or more like, you know, heavy work or more like in a peaking block working up to something damn near a max. So I think it, the way to, I think what people sometimes do is they go, no, I don't do periodization. I do auto-regulation. And I think that that paradigm is difficult to figure out what you're supposed to do. Um, I think it is probably much better to think of auto-regulation helps me adhere to the intent of what my periodization plan is and helps me adjust when it's not going the way I thought it was so that I can change future blocks. So, you know, your, your volume block if you were not using an auto-regulatory strategy, you might find that it pushes you way too close to failure, uh, is really beating you up, or that it's, it's too easy and it's not actually sufficient to stimulate, uh, you know, the workload capacity and hypertrophy changes you want. So you would do things like assigning appropriate RPE targets uh, or open-ended sets with an RPE stop. Um, and that would allow you to not, I think sometimes people think of RPE as holding me back, but sometimes it allows you to push yourself, uh, where you do have the capacity to do so. Um, so yeah. Uh, and then once you get into that intensity block, you know, you, instead of a rigid periodization plan, you have a single at a nine, you know, instead of a single at 90%, you know? So, uh, it just allows you to adapt to, uh, or allows you to, to, to still fulfill the, the guidelines of your program while adapting to the realities of any given day and all the biopsychosocial impacts that can impact your performance. So to piggyback on the last thing, actually, about the whole biopsychosocial influence on, on training and just, I mean, your, your own level of like psychological preparedness, how often or what, what sort of benefits would there be to taking an athlete to an RPE 10, let's say, you know, every so often. Uh, and this was actually something I was talking about with, with Bryce, your client on this podcast as well, quite a while back. Um, 
about kind of reestablishing like new thresholds, right? Where you're going for a while and you're like, this is my RPE nine. And so then because you kind of have that assumption, it's potentially a little bit more likely that you're going to feel that way. Whereas if someone's like, you know what, I'm just going to load up the bar. Like, like you were talking about with the garbage bags. I know Bryce did that for a little bit and then hit some, uh, hit some pretty big numbers. And so at what point do you think it's beneficial, especially since someone is utilizing a subjective method of gauging an objective metric? How, how often would you use that or when would you use that? And in what context would you use that? Sorry, I know that's a really yeah. long-winded, vague question, but... No, it's, it's actually a very good question. I think it gets to the heart of why some people are uncomfortable with RPE. And it also gets to the heart of how to use it in an effective way that still pushes people to, to, to improve performance. Because if you were to take all the information I gave and to prescribe an RPE-based program to a robot, it would be fantastic because uh, they would accurately rate it. Um, they would see then feel that their, their bar speed you know, was, was faster this time and they would go, sweet, I can do more load. But I think as humans, we get certain numbers in our head. You know, So Bryce is a great example of uh, an athlete of mine who I use a mix of loads and RPEs. Um, and that's because I know the way he thinks. And I think it's actually very similar to the way a lot of us think. Like, you know, 650 for five was my like hard three by five a couple of years ago. Oh shit, you know, Eric's got me doing that with 660, this block. I smoked it. I'm stronger. And now I'm open to pushing it on those RPE days. Um, where, you know, anyone who's who's anywhere near high levels of strength, like it still sucks to walk out stuff that, that used to be your max, even though you're well beyond it now. Like when I walk 400 pounds out of the squat rack, even though I'm close to squatting 500, I'm still like, fuck, that's 400 pounds on my back. You know, that's, it, it, that, that's cer certain things are, are, are going to just feel heavy. Um, and that's, that can get in your head. Um, and it is, uh, it's one of the reasons why if you talk to Mike T, about how he suggests you use RPE is to take a mature but aggressive approach to selecting loads. You know, like if you're not sure, and you probably aren't, if we're if we're honest, whether 200 or 202 is at eight RPE today, do 202. <laughs> you know, like if there's a chance that you would be able to set a new, like submaximal PR. Uh, you know, like my new best single at eight RPE. Um, well, you could just do the same weight as last time and it'll feel within that range. It'll feel hard. Um, but why not push it a little bit? The worst case scenario, you hit an eight and a half, no big deal. Um, so that is why sometimes I won't give absolute numbers. I'll give a range, fall somewhere between a seven to nine, uh, with, you know, certain athletes that, that allows them to, to feel the permission to push themselves. Like, all right, you know, if I feel like absolute shit, I'm going to do a single with a seven. If I'm feeling pretty good and I want to push it, I'll go for that single and nine, you know? Um, so I think those, those things can't be underestimated because they, they have a big impact. You can't just take a percentage-based program, convert it into RPEs and think it's just going to be automatically better when you give it to somebody. If their psych psychology is such that they're going to lean towards trying 200 again instead of 202 because they, they don't know if they're stronger, they don't feel it, and they're a little intimidated, then it could even slow them down. So... I think it does take a, you know, a, a more aggressive mindset. I think that is often baked in to powerlifters, especially as, when they're prepping for a meet. So that 
I think we assume it takes care of itself, but it doesn't always, um, especially when you're dealing with prior injury uh, or you're dealing with, a, you know, trying to break a plateau. Uh, you're, you're, you can get depressed from that. You can get kind of stuck in a rut. Uh, you can have tried to break the PR that that plateau so many times and failed that now you're afraid of experiencing that, that, that pain of failure again, of being like, fuck, I haven't hit a PR in three months. Uh, and I, I'm actually, part of me is scared of trying to, because if I don't do it, then I, that's just another failure lumped into my psychology. So I think, I think you have to acknowledge that. So that is why I do recommend using some of these blended approaches and thinking about the psychology of yourself or your athlete, if you're going to use it. Um, that's why I think things like, uh, AMRAPs to an RPE or even to failure, uh, or like you, you talked about with the initial question, training to 10 RPE is useful. Um, because when you tell someone to go to failure, they, they got to keep going, you know, uh, it, you're asking them to, to push the boundaries, push their limits. Um, and one bias that I'm aware of is that I started training in a time that was a slightly different culture to what uh, the training culture is now. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I look at the 70s or 80s and 90s and go like, that's lifting was totally different back then. It wasn't, you know, from talking to those people. Um, but for example, I have met some, some young uh, men and women who have, who started training and got my books very early on in their career. And they have been training with RPE for most of the time they've been lifting, even from a very young training age. And that is a, is a kind of a, kind of blows my mind because for me, I started training to failure because that's just what you do. That's what you did um, in, in like the, the mid 2000s. That was kind of the assumption, you know, if you were in the gym and you did a set and you stopped when the bar speed hadn't slowed down, your training partner would be like, no, you got more. And now that's that the, the assumption sometimes, and, and depending on the training situation you're in or, or the community, they'll be like, oh, they're training to, they're training submaximal on purpose. Uh, where previously, like what I grew up with as a young lifter was, yeah, you, you didn't know that you needed to do more or you needed to push. I'm here to motivate you. So I think the some of the perspectives i have when people are, are like i don't i'm not very good at gauging how far i am from failure i i don't get that that's not a problem for me i'm very good at gauging how far i am to failure because i trained two and passed it for like the first two years i trained um and i think that is probably not the ideal way to train but it's how can you expect to push a near to your limit if you don't know what your limits are and considering the whole goal of training is to increase what our limits are by getting stronger uh, or getting, you know, better at whatever performance metric we're trying to do. That means we, we need to be testing that, that boundary every once in a while. Um, I think that's the value of getting on the platform. I think that's the value of, you know, maybe actually testing your one RMs, even though you could derive it as, as an estimation from a single to eight RP. That's the value of doing AMRAPs. That's the value of potentially doing a block of failure training. And I do prescribe those. I think that that's, it's valuable. You just have to know what you're getting into. You've got to drop your volume a bit. You have to adjust the frequency. You have to think about what movements do I want to do failure on? Uh, do I want to do it on the comp lifts or do I want to give them a, like a pause squat or a pin squat or, or something that, that doesn't put the same absolute load on them? Um, and, uh, and then think about how to use failure training in a way that actually facilitates learning rather than just really grinding, grinding the lifter down. So I 100% agree that, uh, you know, it, you, you do need to have some 
some training that pushes the limits because that is the goal of training. And if we're going to be using a subjective scale that asks you to rate how far you are from the limit, if you haven't been there, that's more difficult to do. It's funny how sometimes when you get under a bar, like you were saying, right, you get under a weight and I know Ed Cohen says like my hundred percent feels like your hundred percent, but I completely disagree. Right. (laughs) Like when I was, when I was a little weaker, unracking my rep, like, you know, 95% was hard, but like the stronger you get, like now unracking 80% for me is like, Oh man, this is heavy. Like it moves, it moves well, but I feel my spine compressing. You know what I mean? And so it's like, I I really disagree with that. And I don't know. I, I, uh, I used to train to failure pretty much all the time before. And I got really strong before I got really injured. And then after when I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta, you know, take care of my injuries. I found it was like a little too conservative. And so now I have this like weird balance where literally exactly what you said, I'm like, I select a weight and I'm like, okay, I need to hit this number. That's what I think I can do. That's what I think is like pretty aggressive. And then I'll add like 10 kilos <laughs> on top of that because I'm like, I'm, I might be being conservative. And then it's like spot on pretty much. Um, and so it's kind of funny. Yeah. Like d- depending on the person, like I find a lot of my, my male clients, sometimes just take stupid jumps. So like, yeah, I took, I took 550 for a single and it felt really good. And so I added another 70 pounds and I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> by the way, that's a true story. That is a true story. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, why, what? Cause his previous jump was from 530. So he went from 530 to 550, thought it felt good. And then added 70 more pounds. And I was just like, what are you doing, man? Like, like literally everything that I've ever told you has just completely gone out the window. And so I find, uh, I find some, sometimes like the, the guys are a little bit more aggressive. Whereas um, I coach a handful of women who are like stupidly strong and they're usually a little bit more conservative, more, more concerned about, you know, injury and like being alive past 40. And mm-hmm. so uh, they tend to make a little bit better decisions, but sometimes on the, on the slightly conservative side. And uh, it's funny actually, because I've got one athlete in particular who has probably undershot her, her like top sets for the last maybe eight months by about 10 kilos. So she'll tell me what she thinks she can do. And then I tell her, no, you're going to do this. And every time she smokes it. And then only recently have I actually seen her her estimation versus what I actually prescribed for her kind of coming closer together as mm-hmm. as she becomes more confident in in her ability to to actually like lift things that she's never touched before. So it's it's kind of interesting how your mindset and your frame of reference, your training history, all that stuff kind of feeds into how you're utilizing RP as well as its you know effectiveness. So there's a little bit of a, a no, hundred percent, man. Um, no, like uh, one one example I think a lot of people can relate to, uh, deload weeks, right? You like you step up to the bar, and this is supposed to be something you can do for eight, and you do like a triple, and you step away from the bar, and you're like, did anyone else see how that was like really fucking hard? Like what happened, you know? And I have come to realize that I part of the reason why, like when you're sometimes you do a deload. And you're like, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to, you know. Um, but as I've gotten more into auto-regulation, I do deloads when I think it's probably a good idea to do them. There are indicators that, that like, they're a little more, more uh, reactive. And it's a relief when the deload week comes around. 
it's a different mindset than just doing them every fourth or sixth week or something like that. So now I've got this deload coming up and man, I can't tell you how many of my lifters echo the same thing. They're like, Oh, good. Whew, I can relax a little bit. I don't have to like be scared all day before I go into my training session. Cause it's brutal. And they get under the bar relaxed. And I'm not mean like completely, but that, you know, when, when you're, when you're stepping up to something like, like you said, uh, when you've reached a certain level of training age, something that is, you know, objectively not your max feels heavy on your back. You don't approach it the same way. And then something that's even further away from your max feels super heavy. And I think that directly speaks to the, uh, the arousal state you have before you go into the session, what your expectations are. So psychology is huge, hundred percent. And, um, that's even influenced how I program deloads sometimes like keep the RPEI, but just really drop the volume. So they actually think, oh, okay, shit, this is still a set at, a, at eight RPE. It's the only set I'm doing, but uh, I need to think about it. Like a lot of the times now when I do deloads, I'll do like, I uh, will start with a single at a seven or a eight and then just have really easy, low volume back off work. Um, and I think that allows the person to both get that physical recovery, but, but not get psyched out by going into the session and feeling like they got crushed by 70%, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's also a great strategy, just even for like making sure people don't get like lethargic mm -hmm. the following week or the following couple of days when intensity ramps back up. Um, so can you can you just touch on what fatigue percentages are? I know that's kind yep. of like people have talked about that uh, in, in addition to like the RPE caps and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, period. That's it. <laughs> no, no, that, that's a good one. And that is, um, that's something I investigated as part of my PhD and something that was a big part of kind of the RTS style training from oh, maybe five or six years ago now. But I think that's fallen a little out of favor. And the idea is that you would start with a top set. Uh, you would work to a target RPE and then you would auto-regulate the number of back offsets you do uh, using a percentage reduction in load. So as an example, a 5% fatigue percentage uh, would be uh, used, and you could couple that with, say, a set of four at an 8RP. And let's just say, for, for ease of math, that was 100 kilos. So you do 100 kilos for four, that was an 8RPE. If you're using a 5% fatigue reduction, you reduce the load by 5%. So you'd go to 95 and then you would repeat these sets, you know, doing sets of four until you got back to the original RPE and the, the, uh, the verbiage of, of a fatigue percentage is you're quantifying the amount of fatigue you experience. So once 95 kilos is an eight RPE or higher, you fatigued by that amount, you've reduced the load by 5%, but the sets because of cumulative fatigue now feel just as hard as when you were doing hundred kilos to start. And that was uh, something that, that Mike T came up with. I think it's a really interesting system. And the idea is that, okay, well, if I have a, a lower fatigue percentage, I'm gonna get fewer back offsets uh, and presumably there'll be less total uh, stress and less total fatigue. So I'll be able to recover from it more quickly. And if I was to give you a higher fatigue percentage, like 7%, you're gonna have to do a lot of sets before you experience that 7% fatigue to where 93% of what you did feels just as hard as that first set. You might have to do four or five, six back offsets. And then you would expect that for the rest of the week, multiple days, or if you train like that for multiple weeks, you would really start to be feeling the fatigue. Um, so you could use uh, lower fatigue percentages for earlier in the block, higher for later in the block, very low fatigue percentages for a deload, 
um, and combining that with uh, the the RPE and the rep range, you could make a cohesive kind of periodization plan. So you could have a volume block with you know sets of eight at seven to eight RPEs with you know five to six percent fatigue percentages, and then as you get into your intensity block, those become three and four percent, and you're doing one to five at an eight to nine RPE, and then your peaking block is like no fatigue percentage, and you're just working up to uh, you know, a single set at a, at a target RPE at a very low rep range, taper and compete. Um, so it, it's basically a way to auto-regulate volume based on how quickly you fatigue. The reason why I don't think it's used anymore is set to set fatigue is influenced by a lot of other factors um, that, that aren't necessarily related to how much volume you should be doing. So and it also doesn't work well with certain programming strategies. Like don't do it with heavy technique work. Like if you're doing, like I mentioned earlier, five singles at a five RPE, if you gave yourself a fatigue percentage of, of anything, you'd be lifting all day long because that for a single at a five RPE that you, then you reduce the load from to go back to being a single at a five RPE would take all day long. And, and I actually made that mistake when I was doing the studies, um, seeing that, I would have to actually cap the number of back offsets at eight if I had people doing like doubles at eight. Like that's just not enough set to set fatigue to actually make that get heavier when you drop it by three or, or five or seven percent. So that would be a strategy a little bit better suited for either fairly high intensity work or fairly high volume work, but not yep. really mid range and light work. Exactly. Yeah. So that's it's something you wouldn't use with a quote unquote power day, you know? Right. And so how, how might you use RPE as like a, like we've done a lot of talking about how you'd use it as a, as a prescriptive tool, but how would you use it as a monitoring tool? That's where I think session RPE really shines. Um, so the two, the two RPE based metrics I use that are for monitoring are estimating one RM from those singles or any reasonably low rep set to a reasonably high RPE. So I can get a constant gauge of performance, which tells you about readiness. Uh, and then session RPE gives me a, 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 uh, a metric of uh, the perceived difficulty of a given session. So if someone racks up a bunch of high session RPEs for a whole week, that is pretty predictably going to drop performance the next week. Um, and when session RPEs start to climb over what your expectations are, that might indicate it's time for a deload or time for a change in programming strategy or at least expecting that performance will be down. If you're trying to overreach, you don't necessarily have to deload. You know, you make whatever decision is appropriate for your strategy. So yeah, between an estimated 1RM that tells you where your current performance is, which tells you something about readiness and fatigue, and between those session RPEs, uh, those are the two ways that I think um, RPE is best used to, to monitor retrospectively. One question that sometimes I like to ask people is, what is one kind of opinion you have that's maybe a little bit controversial and you don't necessarily have tons of evidence to support it, but you feel fairly confident saying, you know what, at this point, I still believe this to be true. Could be related to RP or just something completely different. Good question. Yeah. So one opinion I have is that I'm not actually sure that the volume someone needs to do increases a whole lot uh, when they're going from like intermediate to advanced. I don't have any data to cite for that, but I've just repeatedly seen that anecdotally that you typically, when I've taken someone from 
relatively novice to intermediate, there is a point where if I want to keep a measurable rate of progress up, we do need to bump volume um, and they need to do more and just find a way to do more. But rarely have I been the, have I seen that be the successful strategy for an advanced lifter to keep progressing uh, is that we just need to find a way to do more. Um, normally something else bottlenecks it. Um, and I've seen enough times where reducing volume uh, actually proved to be successful for a relatively uh, high level lifter. Um, and I think sometimes in kind of the, the evidence-based community, we have this assumption that there's a more or less linear graph with training age and volume that you need. Um, and I think that's true for volume load, just because as you get stronger, your volumes will go up. But if we're talking about like set volume, like the total number of sets you do per movement or for muscle group per, per week or per mesocycle, I think it, it actually flatlines pretty early. Um, and, and you have to get a little more savvy and creative and think about individualization strategies that, I mean, they, they, they could include volume, but it might be like cyclical, like body part splits or specialization on one lift at a time. Um, I haven't consistently seen, okay, we got to figure out how to do more and not die, be the solution at a high level. Yeah, I'd say that makes sense. Like I obviously do quite a bit more volume than uh, I did previously, but I would say that it's more relative to volume load than like you were saying sets and things like that. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. So I want to be respectful of your time. And so where can people find you? Well, first just want to say huge thanks for having me on. It was a great discussion. I think you asked a lot of really good questions that covered the full gamut of, uh, of stuff related to RPE. So yeah, you guys can, uh, I, I mentioned uh, that uh, I have books. I've written extensively about training for anyone that's interested. You can check out muscleandstrengthpyramids.com to really read all of my training and nutritional ramblings. Um, I also regularly contribute. I'm one of the uh, you know, co-founders and reviewers for Mass Monthly Applications and Strength Sport. Um, both myself and Dr. Zerdos are contributors to that. And we've done a large amount of the very early stage uh, field uh, of our RPE-based research. So we've written a ton about RPE. We've done videos on it. So that's a good place. That's a subscription-based, you know, research review. So that may or may not be your jam. Um, but if you want more regular content that's related to this stuff, check out uh, the Iron Culture podcast that I do with Omar. We talk about everything related to lifting, a lot of things related to auto-regulation. We've had Mike T, Mike Zerdos, John Kylie on the podcast. Um, and then if you're into uh, anything natural bodybuilding, check out 3dmusclejourney.com. That's a good one-stop shop. There's links to uh, our podcast, Mass, my books, as well as our blog. And then for more kind of, I'd say daily content, but I don't post daily, uh, you can check me out on Instagram at helms3dmj. Awesome. So all of that stuff is going to be linked up below, guys. Make sure you go check them out. If you like this episode, make sure you go and follow Eric as well as myself. Uh, like I said, all the links are going to be below. And also make sure you check out my YouTube channel. I'm terrible at promoting this, so I figure I'm going to consistently be doing this at the end of every podcast. So Eric, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was an awesome chat. Good to have you here. My pleasure.